Hello there, and welcome to my podcast. I'm Connie. I'm a certified nutritionist, personal trainer, busy mom, and I live on a small hobby farm. I'm a former bodybuilder, and I currently have found a love for endurance sports. But I'm not your typical athlete. I believe there are many more contributors to athletic performance and overall health, and that we as a population might be doing it wrong. You won't see me pounding goose or chicken and rice, but you will see me in the pursuit to fuel not only athletic performance, but also balance it with optimal health. This is not just a podcast for athletes. Many people that fall into the health scene get there for a reason. I found myself in suboptimal states at multiple times in my life, and it has really sparked my passion for metabolic and systemic health. I am constantly a student of what I love, and now I hope to help others by bringing quality guests to the show to share their opinions and resources to hopefully help you formulate strategies to help you crack your health code. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode. I hope the previous week treated you well. I know it did for me. I think that summer is upon us and I'm actually a little bit concerned. We haven't had nearly enough rain and when that happens, we have a severe fire danger here and we're well known for having major fires. Uh, And so that's a little bit scary. I'm hoping that that doesn't happen. And not only that, but my horse pastures don't grow. Uh, It's really, really hard on our local aquifer and so water is a little less prevalent and so I'm praying we get some rain here soon because it's definitely been on my mind that we haven't had any rain for springtime. Uh, With that all being said, I did get all of my gardens put in, my bees are thriving, my chickens are wanting to sit on some eggs, so I've got that all going and I'm going to let them hatch some babies here in the next month or so. That should be pretty exciting. Uh, Life on the farm is good. It's really great. It's my own little oasis and I'm so fortunate to have it. Um, As far as training goes, things have been significantly reduced for me. I uh, have been still kind of working on some of my autoimmunity issues, uh, trying to dig into them a little bit further because I think there's something underlying going on that just hasn't gotten caught. Uh, And that could be something in the form of maybe mold exposure or heavy metal toxicity. There's definitely something going on, but my body hasn't been at 100%. Therefore, I have not been training or pushing it real hard, which is kind of a difficult thing, right? Because I want to get out there and push hard and and do all of these things, but I also know I need to respect my body and its abilities to recover and the fact that it is fighting something that we haven't quite gotten to the bottom of yet. So um, that's a journey. I think it's going to be a journey for a while. Uh, And so I'm looking into the appropriate testing as well as finding a good practitioner that can help me kind of sniff some of these things out. So Uh, That's kind of what I'm up to, Um, and it's kind of interesting, just a little thing I was thinking about this morning. I am eating a ton. I'm not tracking it. Uh, I haven't logged any food in my fitness pal for a long, long time, and I know I'm eating a ton, and I kind of roughly estimated it the other day just to kind of see where I'm at because I've been kind of doing the same thing every single day, and it was upwards of 3,500 calories, which is pretty freaking hilarious because I'm not working out much, maybe two times a week if I'm lucky. Uh, I'm not tracking my macros or anything like that. 
And so I was like, oh, crap, I better make sure that everything's good. I haven't stepped on the scale in probably a month or two. And I was like, I, I better make sure that I didn't blow up. And I was expecting to see some crazy change based on my eating habits and lack of exercise. Stepped on the scale and had actually lost weight. I know. Seems crazy. But that just goes to show you sometimes when you start rewarding your body with recovery, sleep, more calories, it pays you back. So instead of placing that emphasis on being in a constant caloric deficit and going hard, sometimes you need to give your body grace. It is extremely important. So I just wanted to throw that in there. Anyway, today I'm super, super excited because I have Ashley Van Houten, aka the Muscle Maven, joining me. I have been following her for years. She's amazing. And it's kind of funny because I felt like I just now finally have a big enough podcast to where I can request her to become a guest on it. Of course, she's super down to earth. I probably should have asked her years ago, but we have an awesome, awesome conversation today about just about everything. We talk about her fitness journey, uh, how she used to be a bodybuilding athlete. We also talk about her beliefs when it comes to ancestral living. And we also talk about her book, It Takes Guts, where she has a whole cookbook on how to cook organ meats, which is really, really super cool because organ meats are the most nutrient dense animal meat protein out there. So um, Ashley, she's a author, speaker and podcast host of Muscle Maven Radio. It's a really great podcast. Feel free to check it out. And she is also the leading authority on understanding the nutrient density of animal protein. Today we touch on all of that and I'm super excited to have you listen to this talk with Ashley Van Houten. All right, Ashley, thank you so much for joining me. I think this is kind of interesting because I've been following you for years and years. And finally, like my podcast has taken off and I was like, you know what, I got to get her on here because she's one of my favorite people. You're so well-rounded. Um, and, and I think the biggest thing with you is I think you're so grounded and you almost take an outside perspective look at everything. And I really love that about you. You're able to kind of talk on just about everything um, just because you kind of look at things from a different angle. And so I really appreciate that with you. Thank you so much. That is so nice of you. Um, I'm super <laughs> pumped to be here. And I, yeah, I mean, I think honestly, and you'll, I'm sure you'll recognize this too, being a podcast host. I think one of the um, ways to kind of stay relatable and helpful in this industry is to always come at these topics like you're a learner too. Like I'm not an expert who knows everything that's just going to tell you what the answer is. I want to ask questions and try to look at it from all different angles. And, and that's what the, you know, curious people do and the people who are willing to learn instead of pretending they know what they're doing all the time. Um, and I think people appreciate that sometimes. So yeah, that's it. 
I love that. Well, and I mean, the first place I actually discovered you was through Paleo Magazine. Uh, you okay. probably get recognized that way in a lot of respects. Um, and then they kind of changed their platform and then you rolled out solo and uh, it's you're doing awesome things, talking with awesome people. And uh, yeah, so can you just kind of tell my listeners a little bit about yourself? What got you into the paleo movement? You now have a book out called It Takes Guts, um, which is about eating organ meats, which is something that I actually really like as well. Um, and so I, I just want to have you kind of talk to my listeners a little bit about who you are and what got you going with all this stuff. Okay, cool. I'll try not to be too long-winded. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't really have like a sort of like a light bulb kind of like fitness moment, like this is how I got here kind of situation. I just... I remember that forever growing up, I always um, was interested and attracted to muscles and strength and being strong. Um, maybe it's because I had older brothers and I was watching a lot of like Arnold Schwarzenegger and like uh, strongman competitions and stuff like that. But I just was always fascinated by what the human body was capable of. Um, and so that was something I kind of took with me as I grew and I got into my own sports and things like that. And I wasn't like a super crazy athlete growing up. I did gymnastics when I was younger and then I graduated into swimming. It wasn't really until I graduated university that I thought of myself as an athlete because I was getting into things like CrossFit was really taking off at that time. Um, and from there, I kind of graduated into like powerlifting, and then I went into bodybuilding after that. We can talk about it. But um, so I started seeing that, like, just because I wasn't playing ball sports doesn't mean I wasn't an athlete, right? And, and I was really enjoying it and learning a lot. And as I was doing that, of course, when you are no longer 21 anymore, you start to think about nutrition and how to prevent injury and take care of your body. And so all of, at this time, all of like the CrossFit stuff was starting to, to pick up steam and then sort of the paleo ancestral health movement was starting to um, do some things. So like Rob Wolf was starting to become a person people were paying attention to and Mark Sisson and people like that. And I had gone to school for communications and marketing and I was working like a corporate job, something typical that paid pretty good and was completely boring and uninteresting to me. And so I was pursuing all this other stuff on the side, like I was doing my sports and building muscle and learning um, just for fun. And at some point, I think it was like I was taking a publishing course with my um, graduate degree and they wanted me to like do a case study on a, a magazine. And I reached out to Paleo Magazine. They were pretty new at the time. Like I knew Vogue wasn't gonna respond to me, but I'm like, maybe Paleo will, <laughs> will answer my emails. Um, and so I talked to the editor in chief and we kind of, you know, built a relationship and then he started kind of sending me um, some one-off stories to write. I was living in New York at the time and there was some stuff going on there in the ancestral health world. And then it just blossomed into, I was writing a lot for the publication. Years later, I ended up taking over and hosting their podcast. And so it was really just a matter of me kind of combining the things I'm good at, uh, which is, you know, writing and communicating and um, journalism and things like that, and melding it with the stuff I was actually interested in, which is human performance and nutrition and wellness and all that stuff. And um, it doesn't always work for everybody, I think, to, to do your passion for a living. And I can understand why it doesn't always work, but so far, <laughs> knock on wood, it's been pretty awesome for me. And I've just kind of continued to grow. Like, as you said, Paleo Magazine is kind of 
moved in a different direction. Um, I since bought the podcast, rebranded it as my own, and it's only grown since then. And I'm kind of continuing to grow and evolve in my own um, career and, and what I'm learning and the stuff that I'm putting out there. But that's the fun of it. And that's what I try to tell people all the time anyway, is that like, there isn't one answer. And once you find it, you're healthy and you know everything and you can just sit sit there and with all that knowledge like the whole point is that you're constantly learning and figuring it out and sharing it with people and that's what I get to do every day it's awesome I love all that and the, the thing about it is is it's that way on every le level it's that way on a mental level a nutrition level a business level like I can't tell you how many times I've changed my business practices and and I'm just barely started you know what I mean like uh it's just like you're constantly reevaluating things and trying to improve them. And then when you get them improved, you find the next aspect that you can start refining. And it's that way system systemically, like throughout everything. So I really love that. And I do have to say, I am very angry at paleo magazine for not having hard copy publications anymore. I'm sure that's not the first time you've heard that. Tell me about it. I'll, I mean, listen, I'm not like, we don't have to go down a throwing people under the bus gossip thing here now but like it was it was it was unfortunate what happened because i think to be fair um paleo magazine was one of the first publications that was like a well-produced high quality publication that you could get anywhere that was dedicated to like ancestral health which is niche right like there's 20 vegan magazines but there aren't a lot of publications that are dedicated to like this really like well-rounded approach to just being a healthy human and they did a really good job um and they lasted for a pretty significant amount of time but magazines cost a lot of money and we all know that like print is very difficult to keep going even when it's doing okay um and i think at the end of the day the those guys they they were passionate and they did a good job but they weren't publishers like they that wasn't their background and i think they just hit a point and especially with the pandemic because that's when they really did their pivot and they ended up eventually selling it to another like parent company so like they're i don't know what's going on over there now i do miss it i'm sad about it but um at the same time i think they were a great resource while they were there and maybe somebody else will uh have the energy to pick up where they left off and we'll see what happens I swear I have like a library of those that are like falling apart because I like would find articles and highlight them. And then I'd be like, oh, this client, they should read this. Like, this is a great article. And then it was like my, it was how I designed all my meal prep, right? The recipes and they were so great. I would get it every couple months and I would be like, yeah, I can do this. This is great. You know? And it still pops up in my Instagram stories and stuff like that, where I'm like writing all my meal preps out and all of that stuff. Right. And so, uh, yeah, but anyways, that's how I initially, um, found you, which is great because you're still doing awesome things. And so at least you haven't gone anywhere. That's positive still note. Still here. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about things a little bit because initially I got listening to you and the podcast and reading your articles. And then I started finding you on other podcasts and came to find out that you were into bodybuilding and you were super into muscle and you talked about it a little bit, but then in these other podcasts, you would really dive in. So what does your evolution of fitness really look like? We talked about the, the beginning phases, but then when did you get serious and start deciding you wanted to compete? And it was like a thing that you wanted to put yourself on stage and you actually did really great in your short career that you had with it. So, um, what got you going that direction? 
Yeah, it's weird. I mean, I feel like um, I've said before in other podcasts, like I feel like a lot of people were like bodybuilders that got into CrossFit or CrossFit that got into bodybuilding. And it's funny because there's some like lighthearted animosity between those two camps a lot of the time because it's like they both make fun of each other for being ridiculous. And it's like, guys, you're both ridiculous. Just relax. You know, like we're all just here to lift weights and look good and like have a good time. We're more alike than we are different. Right. But Mm -hmm. so I really, it's like, so I've always loved muscle. I've always loved growing muscle before I even thought about competing. I never, and I feel very fortunate in this way. And I don't know how I escaped it when so many other people in like our generation didn't, but I never was like, women shouldn't have muscles or I'm worried about being bulky or I'm worried about what people will think if I have big delts or something like that was just never like a concern of mine. I'm just like, I want to go and lift weights. Like I love it. It feels good. So I never really had that kind of issue. And so when I was working out, it was always like buys and tries, like lat pull downs. Like I wasn't doing, and I mean, again, I don't know how old you are, but like it's, it's evolved a lot. Like I'm not saying when I was working out when I was a teenager in the, I don't know, late nineties, early two thousands, it's not like it was so revolutionary for a woman to be in the gym, but it was still quite different back then, even than it is now. Like you don't see scores of women crushing body weight squats and stuff in the gym in 2000 like it wasn't really happening quite as much um there's been a real like sea change i think in how women work out um even recently so um so yeah i got into crossfit i was pretty good at it i didn't really have the mentality to be like super competitive i liked it and i got pretty like i was just always one of those people who like got good enough and then I was happy enough, you know, like I, I could do muscle ups and then like I deadlifted twice my body weight and I'm like, I'm good. Like, I don't really need to, I just didn't feel that drive to have to like really keep going. So, um, it was fun for me. I managed to avoid the crazy burnout and anxiety that a lot of people get when they hit that arc of like learning about CrossFit, being obsessed with CrossFit, injuring themselves hating CrossFit. Like I managed to kind of avoid that cycle a little bit. Um, and you know, got into powerlifting in the same way. I was like pretty good. And probably if I had a little bit of that, like spark to push harder, maybe I could have been okay. But I was just like, "Mm, you know, this is just fun. I just prefer, and I feel like this lends itself to my job. I just really like being well-rounded and learning and understanding and being competent at a lot of things instead of being really good at one thing. Um, and I used to give myself a hard time about it because I was like, I just don't have that, that athlete mentality, that elite mentality. And maybe I don't, maybe I don't have that single minded focus, but I'm kind of okay with it. Like I, I just feel like everything I do, I enjoy and I learn from, and I take elements of all these things and bring them forward into the next thing I do. And I'm just kind of okay with it. Right. Um, and it wasn't until like late twenties that I was just getting people telling me like, Hey, you should do a competition. Like people always do it. Right. You have muscle. Like I have kind of broad shoulders. They were like, you should do a competition. Like just do it. And I was like, (laughs) you know, the classic reaction of like, I could never eat like that. I could never be strict for that long and get that lean. Like you kidding me. Um, and I think I just was bored. I honestly think I was just like, you know, in the, the vein of self-exploration and experimentation and always le- wanting to learn and see how my body works and all that kind of stuff. And I had like kind of hit a point where I wasn't really focusing on anything physically. And I was just kind of like looking for something to do. And, uh, I was like, okay, I'll try this. And where I live most of the time in Ontario is actually, um, like a really surprisingly big 
meathead bodybuilding mecca, like some of the biggest bodybuilders in the world are here. Um, and so that was surprising. But anyway, so I was in an environment that was like really good for it. And I just decided, okay, I'm going to do a competition. I picked figure just because I didn't love the presentation of bikini. And I felt like, uh, you know, and uh, I just felt like my body was a little bit more uh, suited for figure, um, you know, just sort of like the shoulders, more shoulders, less butt kind of situation. Um, and so I picked out a coach that I really, I did my research. I found a um, coach that I really liked. She was a figure competitor, a pro figure competitor who I liked the way she looked. I liked the way she operated and we worked closely together. And I did it and I just, I did quite well. I like, I won my first competition. I won my second competition. I made it to nationals in the biggest province in Canada and the most competitive part of Canada um, in the natural category quite quickly. Um, I, I feel like I probably could have continued if I wanted to. It was just one of those things where, you know, I, I did it because I wanted to learn stuff. And when I felt like I wasn't really learning anything anymore, like sort of the next step was kind of like, you should probably start taking some stuff and like really ramp it up. And I was just like, all right, I think I'm, I'm good here, you know? Um, but I really, really appreciated the experience. I loved learning about how my body worked. Um, I really made an effort to do it. And look, this is an extreme sport. You know that. Um, and it's not, it's, it can be very dysfunctional. It can be very unhealthy. And even for people who do it right, it is extreme and you have to be careful. And so I'm not saying that the whole thing was beautiful and perfect and I would recommend it to everybody. However, um, I really focused on doing it in the healthiest way possible, um, in the most gradual way possible, focusing on after the competition and how to come out of it in a healthy way. Um, and because of that, I was able to avoid certainly metabolic damage, but also sort of like the mental and physical like problems that can arise for sure. So I have nothing but kind of positive feelings about it. Like the getting up on stage in a bikini part was like no problem. I'm like, I, I have like performance anxiety with sports. Like if you tell me to go like deadlift in front of 300 people, I will hyperventilate. But if you're just like, just go look cute on a stage. I'm like, oh, that's fine. Like I'm not doing anything. I'm just getting up there and looking cute. That's, that's no problem. All the work was done leading up to it. Right. Um, so I just had, I had fun, you know, and at the time I was, um, I had a different website and like a blog and I was, I have to find the, I have to find the, uh, like the blog post. Cause I think people would find it very entertaining. Cause again, I took this sort of like really outsider approach to it. I'm like, okay, folks, anybody who wants to know what it's really like backstage at a bodybuilding competition and how weird we are and how crazy it is. Let me tell you some things that people don't, don't tell you. Yeah. Um, and so I was like, just kind of giving this like insider look into the whole process. Um, and I really had a lot of fun with it. It was super cool. I still like, I was talking to somebody the other day. I'm not hundred percent necessarily done with it. I've had people tell me like, you should try to do it like hundred percent paleo, or you should try to do it carnivore or something. And I'm like, if I feel inclined to try it, to try a different kind of experiment, I'd, I'd love to do it again because I don't, I don't really, um, you know, have any strings attached to how I'd need to perform or how it would go. It's just kind of like fun for me. So, um, yeah, I just, I, I only have kind of like, it was weird, but I, I only have good things to say about the experience. I thought it was really cool. 
Yeah, I kind of want to reverse back a little right there too, because you were like, you know, I, I kind of like to learn about these things, but once I hit that curve, I don't go beyond, or I feel like for you, that definitely probably worked in your favor as far as maintaining your metabolic um, health and, and mindset and everything, because I, that's where I see the biggest um, problems happen. And I feel like I, I had actually Rob, I talked to Rob Wolf just a couple of days ago and had him on my podcast. And uh, he literally, he was like, listen, he's like, people are committing suicide via exercise. And that is a extremely true thing. I feel like in like tri- Ironman triathlons and bodybuilding are some of the bad ones, I feel like. And um, in the bodybuilding scene, a lot of these people get this mindset that you can rest when you're dead and all of these things. And it just leads. And then when you get low on body fat and your brain starts not working anymore, then it's like this downward spiral where everything goes amiss. And, and so I feel like your, your natural curiosity for things yet not taking them to the extreme is a great way to be in a great mindset, because I feel like you're probably a lot more balanced than most of us crazy people. Yeah. It, I mean, in a way I sort of agree with what you're saying, because it, it definitely, I don't, really have the typical personality, I guess, that gets into bodybuilding. You know, it tends to be a lot more like laser focused type A, like more is better kind of people, um, which can be certainly problematic. And like you said, bodybuilding isn't the only sport. People kind of like to rag on bodybuilding because it is so aesthetically focused, which people think is inherently, you know, shallow and frivolous. And it's okay if people think that, that's fine. You can argue that most sports that people do at an amateur level is kind of frivolous. Like, does anybody need to do an ultra marathon either? Like you're doing it for your ego, the same way bodybuilders are doing it for their ego, really. Um, But these sports do lend themselves to dysfunctional attitudes. um, And they, in a lot of cases, can cover up or excuse really um, problematic and dysfunctional behaviors. Um, And so I think that another part of what was kind of better for me is that I got into it relatively later in life too. Like I see a lot of like, and especially women where we have so much more going on hormonally, um, you know, women who are getting into bodybuilding at 16, 17, and this isn't judging anybody. I'm just saying it, it can be more problematic when your body's still changing and figuring itself out um, versus I was at an age where I was like, I kind of already think I'm cute. Like, it doesn't really matter if people like me because I have abs now. Like, I'm just doing this for fun, really. Like, I, mm-hmm. it really wasn't tied to the outcome. It was tied to, like, me showing myself what I was capable of. And so having that attitude of, I'm choosing to do this. This is fun. I'm not anxiety-ridden about it. I'm not catastrophizing that if I come in sixth place, all of this was for nothing and I'm the worst. You know, I was just like, I'm getting abs out of this no matter what happens. Like, that's cool. I'm going to take some pictures. I'm going to have a good time with it. I'm going to learn some things. And I think that that relative ease and positive feeling about it is is what helped me do well as well. Because, and I'm sure you know, being backstage, like the people who are incredibly anxious and afraid and nervous and uncomfortable that shows in your performance, that shows in your training leading up to it, everything, right? So if you, you know, you get there and you show up and you're like, I've done all the hard work. I'm here to have a good time. I'm happy. I feel good. The judges are going to see that, right? So um, 
Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, I definitely think having a little bit more of a chill, chill attitude, but I, and I think it goes back to too, like I do a little bit of coaching and this is such a hard thing. It's so easy to say, and it's so hard to do, but knowing what your goals are and having, and I'm going to say this, it doesn't sound right, but having the right goals. And a lot of times it's about intrinsic um, goals versus extrinsic ones. And so I say this like, there's nothing wrong with wanting to look good and wanting other people to look at you and be impressed and to take pictures and have people be like, whoa, look at her. There's nothing wrong with that. Everybody wants to look good. Everybody wants to be accepted. But if that's your only reason for doing something, it just generally isn't a good enough reason because it's not going to um, foster like loving, healthy decisions within yourself. It's not based on feeling good. It's based on some fear and insecurity, right? Um, and so I think that, and a lot of times it doesn't even have to be an aesthetic thing. It's just like some, sometimes people create goals without doing the self-reflective work of determining why is that the goal that I've chosen? What will happen when I achieve it? Um, what's the reason? Is it good enough? Will it get me through? Are there similar adjacent goals that I can come up with that would be healthier for me. Um, I was just talking to another um, competitor the other day where she was saying a lot of people come to her and she's like, and they're like, I want to train. I want to like get bikini lean, even if I don't compete or whatever. And I'm like, a lot of cases, right? You can, you could instead get five weeks out lean, right? Mm -hmm. Which for most people is a much more sustainable, healthy place to be. You still look like a million bucks. You haven't done that last couple of weeks that is so painful and tedious and arduous and mentally taxing. If you're not gonna get up on stage, who the hell cares? Um, and why, why do you need to be that lean? Why couldn't you just get to a healthy, lean, leaner than you've ever been, photo shoot ready, fun stage where you still feel good? Why do you have to do more? Why can't you do enough? You know what I mean? So um, that it's very, it's very, very hard to work that out with people because it's so easy to say, but it's really, really hard to do. Oh boy. There's several things you said there. Um, I had a client come to me, uh, she, and didn't end up signing up with me, which is normal, uh, when you speak the truth, but, uh, she, uh, she, uh, she was like, I just want to look, um, I want to be like, I don't even know what she said, percent body fat, like, like 12, 12 to 14% body fat all the time. I think that that no I would look deal. the best. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, normally we don't walk around that way. That's a pretty unhealthy body fat level for a woman. And I don't think that she liked that answer, but um, also reversing to some things that you said there. I talked about this on a podcast back when I very first started, but the in you almost said identical to what I said about intrinsic and extrinsic uh, motivational factors. And I find what happens with that is so many people when it's an extrinsic factor that they are going after to get attention. Now we have social media. People want to post it on social media or write a blog about it or something and get those comments and things. Uh, I find that your identity gets wrapped up in that process yeah. to where once that process is gone, you lose yourself entirely because you are known as that bodybuilder or that CrossFit athlete or that Ironman. And you, you, that's when you see people real coming out of something like that because they can't find themselves. Their, their whole identity was wrapped up in this one thing. And so I think that's another place where you said you need to find out what your motivational factors are. 
and question the hell out of them <laughs> because you don't want to be stuck in that that space of of being lost and 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 having an identity tied to something that is not something you can always have it tied to yeah and I mean, it takes a lot of work. Like, I'm not saying this flippantly, like it's easy. Just, just have better, better reasons, just have better goals. Like I get it, you know? And like, you look at like professional athletes and like my husband, for example, is a military veteran. And like, there's a, a massive shift that has to happen when you come out of a lifestyle like that. And you're not a part of this incredibly like specific lifestyle and group of people and and shared understanding and shared experience and you're like well shit now what am I and who am I and a lot of us experience this on different levels if you've always identified as a vegan or a bodybuilder or whatever and you feel like if you aren't that anymore you're a failure or you know all of these things that can kind of run through your head and I think that yeah it takes work but again that's the point of this you know the point of it is to be the healthiest happiest person you can be we're not here for a long time right like just don't waste it being stressed out about 100 likes versus 200 likes like come on guys let's just you know put a little bit more self-reflection into it it's not easy but it's worth it um yeah I love all that. And I'm glad that we kind of jumped down that rabbit hole on like a different note. Um, when I first started following you, you're very paleo and I've kind of watched your, your nutrition and things change and metamorphose over the years. And so kind of tell us a little bit about that and where you're at these days. And, um, yeah, like, what does that look like? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny. It's like, just like what we were talking about. If I, if I was like the paleo maven and then I stopped being a little bit paleo and then I had to deal with like pissed off people on the internet. Cause I ate oatmeal once and I'm just like, I'm not about that life. Like, and so I've always, I've, I feel like I've always tried to be clear about here are my core values, but I'm not dogmatic about anything. And I'm not a hundred percent strict on anything ever because again that isn't what life is like that's not what humans are like um and you don't have to be so let's you know give ourselves a break um i actually think that my diet and food and approach to eating has not changed as much as people think i think that i sometimes focus on different things as per what's kind of happening in the wider world um and with the book coming out and this carnivore thing sort of taking off a little bit and this very divisive conversation about plant-based versus animal-based i've kind of joined that conversation a little bit and so folks might think of me as more of like a carnivore-ish kind of person. Um, and so we can talk about that a little bit, but I've had lots of people talk to me and say like, how do I be keto and how do I do all this stuff on keto? And I'm like, I'm not keto. Like, I, I don't have any interest in that. Sorry, I don't, I don't, I wanna eat carbs. I don't wanna do that. So, so I think sometimes people like see like one thing about like, I love to eat steak. And they're like, she only eats steaks. You know, that's yeah. like how the internet works. Uh-huh. I still subscribe mostly to whether you like the terms and you, or you think they're fads or whatever. I subscribe mostly to a whole foods, paleo, ancestral based diet, meaning that I believe most of us should eat mostly whole foods with one ingredient that is as close to unprocessed as possible, period. I think 99% of humanity would be 
best served by doing that. Um, that's going to look very different from person to person. My plate might have a giant steak and like a couple little pieces of vegetables over here. Somebody else's plate might be a big old salad with a little bit of protein in it, anywhere in between, right? Um, but eating that real food, not processed stuff, not stuff that comes from a box, not stuff that was made in the laboratory. If we all just kind of focused in that direction, the vast majority of us would be like 99% sorted out. And I still believe that. I tend to be more animal protein focused because I personally feel better when that is the majority of my nutrients and calories. So like I said, my like paleo plate may look quite carnivore-ish to people, um, but I also selectively eat carbs that I like. I have no problem eating white rice, oatmeal, um, any type of potato you put in front of me, I like it. Like I'll, you know, I'll eat some fruit here and there. I try to really be as kind of intuitive as possible. And, you know, my version of eating carbs is quite low compared to like the standard American diet. Probably I'm, I'm like high, I would be considered like high protein, pretty high fat, relatively low carb, but not keto, you know? Um, and that's really kind of it. I just, I want, I want a variety of food. I want a variety of real foods. I want to be metabolically flexible so that when I eat a bunch of carbs, cause I feel like it, I'm not like knocked on my ass. Um, I want to be able to fast for an entire day if I need to, and have that not knock me on my ass. It took me, um, a little while to get to that point because, you know, like any typical human being and woman who works out a lot. Like I was eating probably higher carbs in like my bodybuilding days and stuff. So it took me some experimenting and playing with lower carb stuff and playing with ketogenic approaches and carnivore approaches and all of this stuff to get to a point where I feel like I'm in a good place and I'm flexible. Um, and I can kind of just take the days as they come and do what feels good for my body. And that's a really lucky, awesome place to be that I am most of the time. Um, and so that's it. I just, I really think people should just aim for real food when possible, metabolic flexibility and resilience, however that looks for you. And the rest is just details, really. I love that you said something back there and you were like whole single ingredient foods. I always like to say, if the food has a label, that is your warning <laughs> because I, that's the easiest way to look at it. Really. If you're trying to pick apart what's in the food, you probably shouldn't be eating it. Whereas we know a steak's a steak, broccoli's broccoli, oats are oats. I mean, they might be a grain. There's people against grains, but you know that that's what it is. Right. Exactly. Um, and it's when you get into these multi ingredient type packaged foods that you end up with a big problem. And you also said something I was kind of chuckling about without even knowing it. And that was the standard American diet. So you're from Canada and it's still the standard American diet for you, which also cracks me up because in every country we are known for the stand American standard American diet and how bad it is in every country. And it kind of cracks me up because it's like people from other countries almost make fun of the fact that we eat so poorly. It's horrible. Yeah. I mean, well, first of all, so I'm, I'm a dual citizen. So I'm like, I have a foot in both countries and I spend a lot of time in the States, but nutritionally we're quite similar. I would say America is a little bit worse because you guys, I mean, the States is the gold standard for crappy diets. Like, let's be real. We, yep. you just are like, that's, that's what it is. That's, there's a lot of reasons and it's not everybody etc. But like America is the gold standard for 
metabolically deranging, awful, obesity-inducing diets. That's just what it is, period. Um, and, you know, I've had conversations with, like, health um, practitioners in, like, the UK, for example, where, and, you know, no place is perfect, certainly, but, like, even the differences, like, and this was a couple years ago, so it might be different, but I just, the story has always stuck with me, that they were saying that McDonald's fries, McDonald's french fries in the UK has three or four ingredients. It's like fries, potatoes, canola oil, salt. Not the healthiest thing in the world. It's a French fry, right? McDonald's French fries in the States have like 20 ingredients. And it's like every nightmare Frankenstein chemical you can imagine put into the oils and all this kind of chemistry. And it just seems like it's like, because America has to do the most for everything. So it's like, even with unhealthy food, like we got to do the most, right? and yeah, it's a problem. And I think they're also like one of the biggest things and one of the conversations I've really been like, I've been treading lightly, but like dipping my foot into it um, because I don't want to just add noise and I don't want to just fight for fighting's sake. But I think it's really important that we start to have more nuanced conversations about how to fix this problem because everything online is too black or white. It's factory farming is bad. So let's all be vegans forever. Like that's an insane response, right? It's like, if you, it's like saying like, I had one bad date, so I will never go on a date ever again in my life. It's like, no, just pick better people or, you know, you know what I mean? Like do your research. So I think that we need to, we need to have these conversations about how to make better choices with our money and our resources and how to, um, learn about agriculture and regenerative agriculture and sustainable agriculture and how to um, just give back a little bit more to the system that's nourishing us instead of turning away from it completely um, or doing a complete 180. Like I don't, I just don't know how anybody thinks it's sustainable for the entire world to eat processed vegan food overnight. I think that's insane. No, it's Um, totally insane. 100%. So having this conversation, like, instead of just saying, okay, it's it's either black or white, let's say, how do we meet in the middle? We all, most of us will agree that we have the same um, goals of having a healthy planet, um, not being cruel to animals and being healthy personally. So if those are kind of the main goals we're all, we can all agree on, how do we figure that out on a global scale? Absolutely. And like some things I get pretty passionate about the agriculture industry because that's what I've been in my whole life. Hence my podcast name. Uh, and I grew up with cattle ranching and I grew up with all of these farm, all of this farming. I grew up driving tractors and combines and all of these things. And I know what uses the most of our resources. And I know people think that this cattle industry is like extremely violent and all these things. Well, maybe the end days. Yes, I will give it that. But most of these cattle, they are known by their tag numbers. Like you're like, Oh, that's 54. She's a bitch. You know, don't go near her. Um, but you know, like you become, or you're like, Oh, you know, some of them don't have tag numbers. It's like, Oh, there's Norma. You can go pet her and get her baby. And she's not going to attack you. Like you get to know out of all of these hundreds and hundreds of cattle, you get to know them. They're around year after year that the, the hurt, the heifers are, um, like the, they're around. And when you, you are obviously raising them to go for meat later on or raising babies to go for meat, but they're most of their life is spent in these 
beautiful pastures, you know, almost everybody I know that's into ranching, beautiful pastures. They're not being raised the way people think that they're being raised. Yes, they go to the feedlot lot in the end stages of their life. Um, that's an unfortunate consequence of things. Um, but for most of their life, they're not doing too shabby. <laughs> like that they're, they're doing well, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's also a consequence of our fear and discomfort about talking about death. So again, we kind of turn away from the reality of it instead of learning, understanding, and trying to make changes where we can. And in the course of my book, I interviewed some, some farmers and one in particular who taught me a lot. She's incredible. And I learned that a lot of these, you know, smaller farmers or regenerative agriculture farmers, they care about these animals more than any person with a pet cares about an animal because they put, that's might piss some people off, but they put so much money and effort and time and love into caring for these animals. And then they have to harvest them at the end of their lives, which is incredibly taxing and tough for people. Like 99.9% of farmers, I think would say, I don't love killing these animals. Right. This is the, this is what we're doing. This is the circle of life. Mm -hmm. But it's also this concept that in other cultures who are much more familiar and comfortable with death and understand that it is a natural part of living, um, they have a less hard time with this, but it's this idea that like, we should, we are separate from the life cycle of nature. Like somehow we got away with being completely separate from it. We don't have to shed any blood. There doesn't ever have to be any discomfort or pain in our minds thinking about animals dying and things like that. Like people don't stop to consider that, especially in like humanely raised and harvested um, circumstances, that these animals live beautiful, stress-free lives and then are killed quickly and humanely at the end of their life, which I got to say is something we could all be so lucky to have yeah. at the end of our lives. And animals who are dying naturally in the wild is bad. Very rarely get painless, quick, no, it's bad. Deaths, right? They're dying <laughs> yeah. from starvation mm. or from being torn apart by another animal. And then um, living for months afterwards or something. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of that in nature, period. Yeah. 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 And so again, like at the end of the day, if someone has said, I personally don't feel comfortable knowing that animals are dying for me, fine. That's, I would never try to force somebody to eat in a way that is against their morals and values. But to say that we are separate from our entire history and every other part of the food chain, and that it is unnatural for humans to engage in eating animals is categorically false and ridiculous. If you choose to not eat that way, congratulations. But the rest of us, I think, need to do some work and figure out how we can do this in a way that is sustainable good for us, good for the planet. And I think it's achievable if we just accept the reality of the situation and work to improve it instead of pretending that we can have like a Disney life where nothing dies and just eat tofu burgers instead. Yeah. And you know what? This whole world is based on death. Like the death is what, for, like everything dies, plants die, animals die. Like 
that is part of the life cycle. It's how it goes. You start eliminating that factor and you're going to have a loss of something else coming involved. And you, you may not be killing animals to eat them for meat, but you still are in a form of some kind of different sacrifice that's being made for all of this farmland that they're growing all of these lab made burger things and like all the soy and whatnot that goes with it. So I fully agree with you in, in all of that. Yeah. I mean, plant, plant-based diets are not blood-free diets either. And you could argue that they're potentially, I mean, more wasteful because if you are raising these massive monocrops and killing thousands of small rodents and rabbits and birds and things like that, and then not eating them, you can argue that that's, that's certainly more cruel and wasteful than, than raising animals in a healthy, humane environment to then make use of their body when their time is done. Right. So, Mm -hmm. um, and you know, and again, it's like, it's, there's no point in kind of just going online to like point fingers because I just feel like, I feel like so much of what we're doing online now is like preaching to our own choirs. We're, we're being aggressive and condescending in a way that like the people who need to hear different opinions aren't going to hear them because they're so turned off and feel patronized. Um, so I really try my best to, to not be overly aggressive or rude, or, you know, I'm just trying to put out, I'm trying to live by example. I'm trying to put out information. I'm trying to communicate what I think is helpful to people. And when people are ready to hear it, I mean, I get tons of people all the time coming to me saying I was vegan for 10 years. My health was garbage. I'm starting to fix it. I don't know how to start. How do I do this? And I'm happy to help people. Um, and um, that's, that's just what we need to do. We need to be resources and we need to be like compassionate and helpful and open instead of my way's right and you're an idiot for thinking otherwise. It, doesn't, it just doesn't change people's minds, right? So like, what's the point? I love all of that. And I'm totally in that same camp with you on all of that. So yeah. Um, so kind of back to the animals then, when do you start incorporating organ meats into your diet? And when did that become your, a thing? Because, uh, it's definitely something that you're passionate about. And, uh, you know, we just got to get you on Joe Rogan to talk about it, but, uh, we're working that (laughs) I'm working on it. Just, just get me on there for like 20 minutes. I really think in between the fact that it's funny because I'm like, literally, I want Joe Rogan's career because I, the only reality show I ever watched was fear factor back in the day. I know it's disgusting, but I loved it. And I'm a massive UFC fan. So of course I follow him for like the MMA news and stuff too. I'm just like, Joe Rogan and I are the same person essentially. I just need to convince him of it. But anyway, (laughs) um, okay. So organ meats. Um, I've always, I think looking back, I think I've always been like, I've always gravitated towards like the meatier meats, you know, there's like people who are like, I meat, eat meat, but like, I want to eat chicken breast and I want to eat off the bone. And like, yeah, I was always the one like eating other people's fat and like eating like sardines and like dark meat. And like, I just kind of was always like into that. Um, and I, when I was living in New York, of course I had access to like every cool cuisine on the planet. And so I was experimenting a lot with different like ethnic cuisines and different like types of foods. And I always was very, I guess, adventurous in that way, because I just felt like it was, first of all, food is the best thing in the world. So like, why not try stuff? Right. And I feel like it's such a like low risk way to, to take risks and experiment. Cause it's like, you know, you try some crazy weird sushi or some like 
part of a chicken you've never eaten before. And you're like, what's the worst that could happen? You don't like it. And then you move on. Right. But if you do like it, like you're having this super cool experience and in many cases it's a cultural experience. And so I started getting more into it, not even from a health perspective, just from like a culinary pleasure perspective when I was living in New York. Um, and then as my kind of career was moving forward in like this world with the podcasting, and I was trying to figure out like, to be honest with you, like what's my niche here? Because I, I know I have lots to say, I have lots to offer, but I don't want to just put out another paleo cookbook. There's a billion of them. What's unique about that? What's helpful? Um, and in the meantime, I had been experimenting on my own with some organ meats, nose to tail stuff. I was like, making stuff with liver and chicken hearts and I was sharing it online and people were like gross but also what are you doing and tell me about it and like so people were kind of interested and so I started thinking like maybe there's something here like there really isn't a lot of resources for this there's a couple like French cookbooks or old Italian cookbooks that have all these crazy organ meat recipes but like there's nothing really even in the carnivore hunting paleo world there really isn't much about it um, besides like bone broth or whatever. And so sort of like mid last year, well, I guess like late 2019 now, I was thinking maybe I should write a book about organ meats and, you know, I'll just write it and maybe I'll self-publish it and maybe I'll convince 10 of my friends to buy it. But like, I feel like I'm onto something here. I feel like this is an area that's important for people who do eat meat to learn about and understand. Um, it's a really untapped health resource that even people who, again, eat meat and are bought into this lifestyle, still don't know anything about really. Um, so I felt like there was like a real space in the market for this kind of content. Um, and I really just felt passionate. I just felt like, look, it's never gonna be New York Times number one bestseller, but the people who are interested are gonna, they, they need a resource. So like, let's do this. And I, I think I just felt so strongly about it that like the universe kind of figured it out for me because I was talking to a friend who had written a cookbook and I was telling her, I was like running this idea by her and she's like, hey, let me like introduce you to my publisher. I think you might have something here. And like a week later, I was talking to a publisher and they were like, wow, you're really into this. I can tell you're passionate about it. And like a week later, I had signed a contract and then I was writing this book <laughs> and the pandemic hit and so for the first like eight to 10 months when like the whole world really was like pretty much sitting in their house wondering what the hell was going on. I was sitting and like writing this cookbook. Like <laughs> I literally wrote the cookbook, published it in the pandemic. Um, and it's like, it's, it's doing pretty well. Like I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised. Um, but like I said, I think that the, with the carnivore, like meat-based world kind of expanding a little bit. And then of course there's hunters who, who understand the value of making use of the entire animal. It's not weird for them. And then I get people coming out of the woodwork from all other parts of the world where they're like, yeah, I already cook with this stuff. Like, this isn't a big deal to me. Like, I'm glad that you're talking about it. Um, it's really only like this small subsection of North America, like modern kind of privileged people where we get to choose to only eat these select cuts or we can choose to be vegan because we can get away with it in our modern world and, and all these things, but like throughout history and all over the world, this has been the way people eat. So I just wanted to kind of like bring it forward in a way that was accessible and very easy to understand. The recipes are for the most part quite basic because 
I am a basic chef. I'm not like a trained chef. Um, so I think it's really, I think it's really accessible for people and I tried to make it fun and, um, it's been really, it's been a really cool experience. That's totally awesome. Well, and the, the irony of this is, and you probably know it because obviously that's what got you into this, but, um, a lot of people don't realize that the organ meat is the most nutrient dense meat in the animal. And so in a lot of other countries, the organ meats are almost I don't want to say worship, but they are highly valued. And then the other stuff, the muscle meat is just like, nah, we'll feed that to our dog in many, many countries. And it's kind of funny because um, I don't know if you know who Dr. Bill Schindler is, but you would probably hit it off with him uh, huge. He's like, I go to this other country and they had two different offerings in the restaurant. It was the organ platter and the meat platter. And the meat platter was cheap. Organ platter was more expensive. And he says, organ platter shows up. It's beautiful. It's all these colors and it's decorated and it's amazing like it's hallowed you know and then he says the meat platter shows up and it's just a bunch of chunks of meat that are like some on bones some not and it's like in a big pile and he's like it looked horrific it was like gray and and gross and he said that's when I realized that these people they value the organ meat because of its nutrient density and the health benefits you get with eating it Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely I mean (laughs) Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I think that it's it's fallen out of favor for um, some practical reasons, like agriculture, like industrial revolution. You know, we started mass producing meat, and some organs tend to be a little bit more, at least, just sort of tricky to handle, transport, keep. And so, for that reason, they went from being like just typical food that you would eat to a little bit more rare. And then as we move to big box grocery stores versus neighborhood butchers, they became less available. And we also became less knowledgeable and connected to our food. So we couldn't just say like, Hey, Steve, like, where's the tongue? You know, like we, cause we're going to these massive grocery chains where they don't have that stuff. But I love to tell people, like you said about like, you know, they throw the muscle meat to the dogs, like hunters and still, you know, tribal communities and hunting communities and stuff to this day when there's no google to tell you what the like best food is we instinctively knew that when you kill an animal you go for the heart and you go for the liver and you eat those first and that's what you eat right out of the gate fresh and raw and that's what gives you your nutrients and then you cut up what's left over and you deal with it like we know these things inherently and we've unlearned it all um to the point where like part of the other like kind of conversation that's going on right now which is this like seemingly starting to demonize eating meat like like throughout all of history it's been normal and now all of a sudden it's this conversation where like but is it even okay to do and is it is it something we should do and the thing that upsets me about it because i know like people can say like it's not a big deal just like do what you got to do let this person eat a soy burger and it's like yeah okay However, um, the way communication, the way information is communicated now, it's so hard for people to tell what is a bias versus an unbiased source. And so if you go to like vegan times, you know, you're getting biased information. If you go to carnivore, whoever on Instagram, you know, you're getting biased information, right? Um, But for me, it's like doing research into women's health And I read um, a nutrition article for pregnant women about how to get enough healthy protein to support yourself and your growing baby. 
and it's a list that includes peanut butter, chickpea crackers, and soy. And it does not even list animal products. And we're talking about protein. And so this is a site that is considered probably by most people, it doesn't say like vegan parent, it's like a massive, you know, pregnancy website that you would assume would have just like unbiased information that is balanced for people. And they don't even mention eggs, chicken, dairy, beef, anything on a list of how to get bioavailable protein for your growing body. That's the stuff that scares me because that is how real misinformation is spread because it's not even a part, we're erasing it from the conversation entirely. Um, that's problematic. That's the kind of stuff that worries me. Um, and we're, I'm, I'm actively trying to work against, I guess. Man, and that's super deep. And I'm so glad that you brought that up because it's that way on so many accounts in so many different things. Like, I mean, you can get into like the fact that they had studies published that said glyphosate isn't dangerous, you know, and who was involved in those peer reviewed studies, more people paid by the people that were peer reviewing it. Like there's a lot of misinformation period. And I feel like in this culture and this world that we live in, we can pretty much find evidence to support whatever belief we want. Um, because in the end, a lot of this stuff comes down to financial gain and what people can get out of things. And so a lot of these things have a financial backing to them of some kind that makes them extremely inaccurate. Yep. It's depressing. I mean, I don't have anything else to add to that. It's just depressing. <laughs> it's very sad. Like, and, you know, the people who say that it's, it's surprising because you'd almost think, again, if you think about like American culture, barbecue, burgers, and fast food, like you'd think that there'd be this massive sort of silent uh, meat lobby agenda that's like pushing stuff. You'd think there is. I have yet to see it. Um, there's much more money and, and special interest behind plant-based stuff. And I mean, we know that like most of um, like the, the major kind of food companies, they're all based in plant-based um, soy, you know, corn, whatever, all of these sort of like produced um, food-like products, right? Like, so there's so much more emphasis and marketing behind the, the plant-based stuff than there is meat based. So I do feel like sometimes I'll like, I'll get up in the morning ready to go and I'll just feel so beaten down because I'm like, again, we've got this kind of small group of people who, who aren't trying to push. Everybody needs to eat steaks all day. We're just saying like, think about, just go back to what being a human is like, is being a human, like eating science projects or is it being out in the sun and eating things that come from nature and feeling good, you know? And I just feel like we lose sight of it um, oftentimes because we are spending so much time looking at biased special interest stuff online and it's, it's messing us up. So it's scary. I think looking back at just the evolution of humans in general, right? Uh, you know, I think at, we are at an all-time high for sickness and cancer and all of these things. And then you start thinking of all these agendas that have been pushed in this in the background of it all. And you're like, okay, well, if this is right, then how come we continue to get sicker and sicker? And so 
I, I think that's where part of the ancestral movement is super appealing to me because uh, if you saw a fat person, and I'm not trying to say that in a mean way, uh, but it's true. There are so many people, we're probably getting canceled over this, but that's okay. Uh, there's so many people out there that are extremely obese at this point. It's not even a um, talking subject like, like, hey, we're making fun of you. This is a health concern, a major health concern. And everybody is almost doubled in size at this point. Um, when I was a child in school, people, if you had a kid that was larger than others, it was maybe one out of all the classes. And now it's the other way around. And so something is happening with our culture that is causing that. And it's lack of movement and stuff too. But back in the day, you never saw that even in the sixties and fifties. And you didn't see that. And I, I think that the more that the agenda is being pushed, the more you're seeing a health decline. And that's a really scary thing. And it's scary too, when again, we are in, I think more, a more uniquely bizarre place than ever in life where we somehow now not only can just find information that will back up our, our thoughts. Cause I think that's kind of always existed, but where we can literally just decide to ignore facts because we don't want to hear them because there are, look, studies can be hard to interpret. Um, not all of us have the ability or the time to read high level scientific studies and understand what they're telling us. Right. So I, I understand that part that we need other we need intermediaries to explain things to us, but there are some facts that are quite apparent to anybody who can sort of read things like we are eating, we're actually eating less red meat now than we have over the past several decades. We're eating much less animal fat. Um, we're eating way more processed food, vegetable oils, sugar, all of those things. Those are facts. Like we can't, we can't say that that's not true. And yet people can look at that information and still say it's meat. That's the problem. It's not processed food. It's not sugar. It's not, you know, vegetable oils. So when we're in a, such a emotion-based illogical place, I mean, how do you then hope to educate people? It's again, I, I'm sorry, this is kind of like going in a bummer direction, <laughs> but it's really, it's really tough because it's the truth. Um, and with food, I feel like more than anything, I mean, there's there's lots of areas, of course, that hot button issues, politics, religion, you name it. But mm -hmm. with food, because people um, take it so personally, because people get so defensive, um, and because it is such an important part of people's lives, the way they eat, the food they enjoy, the food they're feeding their families, all of those things, it can be very hard to get past defensiveness and programming right? And, mm -hmm. and just give people facts and logical, real information, because there's just so much emotion involved. And it, it's tough. I love it. Well, and you know, and it, it, unfortunate, it's an unfortunate conversation to have, but it's a true one. And so that's just kind of part of things. But um, I do know that it's funny, because um, we're big hunters and stuff like that. And people think you're so gross, right? Because uh, we we had elk tongue tacos, uh, you know, and like, I posted a picture on my Instagram of me with this liver that was like, <laughs> the biggest liver ever I've ever seen. And people are like, Ew, like, like, are you going to eat that? And it's like, yeah, it's the most nutrient dense part of the animal. Of course, I'm going to eat that. And how weird is it that like 90% of these people wouldn't bat an eyelash at picking up 
a chicken breast or a pork rib. It's like you're picking up a body part of an animal. This is just a different body part of the same animal. What's I don't literally I don't get it. Like it's just it's just a different part of the same animal, guys. It's not weird. That's funny. So in this evolution of of this, have you found that um eating more organ meats for you has improved your health significantly or your your mood, your energy levels, things like that? Yeah. I mean, again, it's, it's kind of hard, like it's an N equals one situation, right? Because it's just me. Um, and I've been, I've been quite fortunate, um, because of possibly genetics and luck, and then also taking care of myself that I haven't really had a ton of like, I've been able to avoid, you know, autoimmune disease and any kind of like sort of hormonal issues, you know, stuff like that. I've been like, I'm generally a pretty sorted out healthy person. Um, but I would say that, regular consumption of organ meats has upped it, has upped my level of health and has also kept me um, much more resilient. Again, we talked about this earlier with like sort of just being a robust, resilient person, I think is really underrated. Um, The ability to just sort of not get sick easily and not have um, lifestyle factors um, totally derail you and things like that. Like just being a sort of robust human being, I feel like the fact that I eat organ meats regularly, and you know, I hate to say this stuff because it sounds so like tacky, knock on wood, but like I haven't been, I can't remember the last time I was sick. I honestly can't like cold, flu, headache, ate something weird, nothing. I just, I'm just kind of sorted out. Like my energy is just kind of sorted. I skin issue. Like I don't, digestion's good. Like I'm just kind of, it's just kind of great. And, and then I'll also say, and I've said this before that with liver specifically, I'm sure you have felt this too. I have never eaten anything that makes me feel supercharged like eating liver does. Like, you know, you can eat food that like gives you like a sugar burst, or you could eat food that you feel really satiated. Like you have a nice big meat and vegetables and you feel just good or whatever, but nothing makes me feel the way eating liver makes me feel like I'm just like a little bit like Superman. Like I just feel like that when I eat liver. Um, and I think that that, I mean, that says something because we're so used to, I mean, we live in a culture where you can go to the pharmacy and buy drugs that you take after you eat food. So you don't blow your stomach out and have heartburn for 10 hours and people still eat those foods. Like we willingly eat food that we know destroys us because it tastes good in our mouths. And then we take some drug after to like mitigate whatever. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you can eat something that makes you feel like a superhero. Right. And it's just like, well, one of them maybe is a little bit more hyper palatable. One of them is a little bit more of an acquired taste, but I'd rather feel like Superman than feel like I need to take this drug immediately or I'm going to be on the toilet for five hours. You know what I mean? Amen to all of that. Amen to all of that. I would tell people like, and you know, I get a lot of people who are like, I can, I can't get into the liver. Like, can I just take the pills or can I just swallow some frozen liver or, you know, and I always tell people there's a lot of other organs you can try that are all very nutrient dense too. It doesn't have to be liver. Um, but I think there is an element of like, we're adults here. Not everything we eat needs to taste like chocolate cake. Sometimes you eat food because it's nourishing and it's good for you and it's going to make you feel better, not because it's the best tasting thing you've ever eaten. Mm-hmm. With that said, here are some recipes to make it taste better. I love it. I love it. And so for your book, 
uh, where's the best place for my listeners to go look for it? If it's something that they want to look more into. Yeah. It's so the book is called, it takes guts and, uh, very literal play on words there. And you can get it anywhere. Um, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, um, kind of any major store. Um, you can get it online. You can go to my website if you want to learn more. It's just my name, ashleyvanhouten.com. Um, but yeah, you can get it wherever. I actually saw it at Barnes and Noble. Well, I was in there probably a month or two ago and I actually almost took a picture of it and tagged you and like, Hey, cool. It's over here. Uh, yeah, in it. our it tiny little good. area. Yeah. It's so funny. Uh, but yeah, that's totally awesome what you're doing with that. And I certainly appreciate you putting info out there and finding that niche because you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a hard thing to do in this world and we need more things that are specialized, you know? So, yeah. um, yeah. And I mean, on a final note, uh, like we kind of didn't touch into the fitness part of things at all. Like, what does that look for you these days? Oh my God. I mean, it's, it's not been my priority as of late. I'll say that. Um, I feel like, you know, for the first six months of, of quarantine, maybe I was quite, uh, disciplined and excited to maybe take some time off from the gym, you know, as somebody, and I'm sure you're similar. Like, I'm like, I've been bodybuilding for like a decade straight, like probably my body could use a break, you know? Um, and I'm, I'm dedicated. I have a decent home gym. I was like, this is fine. Like I'll take some time off. I'll chill. I'll just sort of do some stuff that feels good in my body. And then as the months went on and the months went on and like the gym would open for a couple weeks and it would close again. And it was just like this nightmare. I, it started to get tougher for me, I'll be honest. And I live in a place that has a very long, harsh winter. You can't really go for walks that are pleasurable. Like it's serious up here. Um, and so, and also then I was writing a book and there was all kinds of stuff going on. So like, this is probably the, the first period in my adult life where fitness has really kind of taken like second, third seat to other things where it was always sort of one or two really for me. Um, with that said, it's always important for me to be healthy. And so like now that the weather's getting better, like I'm walking every day, I'm getting at least like the 10 K steps, you know? Um, I have a decent gym at home. I'm doing body weight stuff. I'm doing some sort of quick circuit hit kind of strength, just general compound movements. Um, I'm actually planning on putting out a podcast um, pretty soon, like a solo episode, sort of talking about giving some information for how people can kind of program their own workouts, because I get a lot of questions from people who are like, my, my gym situation has changed pretty drastically. I don't necessarily want to pay for a coach or whatever, but I kind of don't know what to do in the gym. And I think sometimes we overcomplicate it. So I'm going to put some information out just based on what I found to be successful, where it's like, stick to the basics, but like do them well and like focus and invest in yourself while you're there, but you don't need to be there a lot. Um, so, I mean, long story short, my, my fitness is not at its best, but I'm healthy. I'm, I'm pretty strong. And, and to be honest with you, I'm excited about when this begins to blow over and when I can go back to the gym and when life becomes a little bit more normal, I'm sort of excited to enter a new period of almost starting again a little bit, you know, like I've got, of course, this like basis of fitness, but like going back and kind of like bringing my weights way down and like maybe working on some imbalances and like 
doing some things differently um, because as we talked about at the beginning, like I like to look at fitness as like experiments and fun. And so instead of spending time thinking about like, shit, I haven't like barbell squatted in a year and I'm going to be so weak and this is miserable. Instead, I'm thinking like, this is a real opportunity to like challenge myself and kind of start from scratch in a lot of ways. And so that's what I'm hoping will happen. I would assume maybe I'm hoping by like fall, maybe this is going to start for me. Um, but in the meantime, you know, I'll get my outdoor workouts in and walk a lot and go swimming and just kind of enjoy my life. I think. I love that. I'm kind of in a similar phase in life where even, I mean, I have my own gym. That's a really nice gym. So the gym's not a problem for me, but, um, yeah you know, I'm like taking a break and taking a step back and letting my body kind of reset. And my workouts are so basic. Like it's a couple compound movements and that's it. Like, (laughs) and, uh, and it's been a really awesome thing actually to take things back. And I've noticed some weird anomalies with that, which that's a whole nother talk, but, um, it is good to kind of reset sometimes. And I, I, uh, I think that we all need that at one point or another too. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it goes back to like the, you know, work smarter, not harder thing. Like, I think that there is, um, you start to understand the law of like diminishing returns and, and minimum effective dose. And like, I was always somebody who worked out at the gym at least five days a week because I liked it, mm-hmm. but really learning and understanding that I don't have to, mm-hmm. like, I'm not going to lose my gains if I work out three or four days and two of those workouts are at home and I cut my volume in half even like if you're training for something specific you got to train for something specific if you're training for general fitness and life and health you can do a lot less you just do it more efficiently you focus when you're in there you dedicate the time that you're in there to like real hard work Um, and then the rest of the time, like, just go live your life and be happy. You don't, you don't have to be spending hours in the gym. Um, so it's been, that's been a good lesson for me, honestly, being, um, unable to work out as much as I wanted to. And have you seen a lot of physique changes or no? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think like, I definitely think I lost some muscle. Um, I, again, I don't think I've like, it's funny. Cause like in the first few months, like I was like fitter because I was like doubling down on my food and I was not moving as much. So I wasn't as hungry. And so I was like, shoot, like a couple months in the pandemic, these abs are popping out. I'm like, great. You know? And then again, a year later, I'm like, all right, things are switching up a little bit, but you know, I don't look like I can be stage ready in a couple weeks. I, but I'm fine. I'm, I'm fit. I'm healthy. I, you know, I can do the things I need to do. Um, and I'm okay with, you know, again, I'm a woman, so I'm okay with having like fluctuations over the course of the year, naturally based on the weather, based on what I'm doing, I'm going to be a little softer, a little leaner, and I'm kind of okay with like embracing all of those periods. So I'm in a bit of a softer period and I'm fine with that. Yeah. I had to ask. Cause that's like, I haven't, I don't think I've lost muscle, even though I do hardly anything anymore. So it's kind of funny. Like, I think I have lost some, I'll be honest. Like, again, it's not like, it's not significant. And I think, you know, we talk about stuff like training age and muscle maturity and like, I've been doing this for a while. So I I have a pretty good feeling that like, as soon as I get back in there doing what I'm used to doing, it comes back. Like, I'm not worried about it. Um, but 
Yeah, I mean, but I think it's one of those things too. People think like, if I miss a day, I'm gonna lose my gains. Or if I take a week off on vacation, I'm gonna lose my gains. I'm like, no. If you don't work out for a year, you might lose some muscle. <laughs> but you know, if you're still taking care of yourself, you're eating your protein, you know, you're doing sort of like the bare minimum, you'd be amazed at like how well that kind of it, it holds together, you know. I love that. Well, if my listeners want to come find you, look more into your podcast and your social media and all these things, where do they, and your book, we talked about where they can find that, but where can they come and find you? Yeah. Thank you. Um, so I'm, I'm most kind of active on Instagram and my handle is the muscle maven and my podcast is muscle maven radio. You can get that wherever you listen to podcasts. And then, um, yeah, it's mostly just my website, ashleyvanhouten.com. I've got all of my programs and workshops and kind of different stuff that I offer there. And I have a blog and you can send me a message there. Um, so yeah, everything's on the website or say hi to me on Instagram. That'd be great. I love it. Well, you're doing great things and I certainly appreciate you joining me today. Thank you so much, Connie. This was super fun. We, we covered a lot of ground. I, you know, it seems to happen that way. I swear, (laughs) but it's never a bad thing. I love all the conversations. Yeah. You do a great job. (laughs) Thank you. Well, I certainly got a lot from my conversation with Ashley. I really, really enjoyed having her on the show. She has so much knowledge. She's definitely got a spark that draws me to her because she's so multifaceted. So I really enjoyed that conversation and I hope you did too. If you did find value in it, please, please, please go leave me a review. I can't tell you how important those reviews are. I know that I say this all the time and probably more than likely you haven't left a review, but they are so beneficial to the growth of this podcast, as well as getting quality guests on the show and helping other people find and listen to what we have to say. So super important with all of that, the review stuff and put us on social media, share with your friends, share with your family, tag me in your stories. I want to know that you're listening and that you're getting value out of it. It's super important that I'm helping others and that they learn things. So let me know that it's working. Um, also, don't forget that I have a ton of great stuff on my website at www.connynightingale.com. You can find programs on there, free recipe packs, uh, little blog posts that I've written that are really, really great. And I think that you can find a lot of value on there, whether you have money to spend or not. It's not about that. Although there are some super affordable programs on there or look into talking to me about some custom coaching. I'm always happy to do that as well. Well, guys, it's been a pleasure and we will see you next Monday.